There's no area of healthcare that will not be touched by AI. Physicians or companies who do not have an AI strategy in place will get left behind by those who do. We've been hearing a lot of trite expressions lately. Will AI be taking on a much larger role in healthcare and diagnostics like it has in other aspects of our lives? Dr. Raphael Rosengarten, CEO of Genialis, a data science and drug discovery company and member of the Alliance for AI and Healthcare, joins us. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Raphael Rosengarten is CEO of Genialis, a data science and drug discovery company focused on new ways to treat disease. Raphael Rosengarten, welcome to the podcast. Unless you've been under a rock for the last couple of years, you would think AI is going to take over our lives. Certainly in healthcare, we're hearing a lot about it. Just to get everyone on the same page, could you tell us very simply just what is AI and what would maybe be some examples of it in everyday life that we're used to seeing that maybe we don't even realize are AI? Sure. Um, and thank you for, for starting at the top. Um, I will try to put it in simple terms, but I'm not going to give you a short answer. Uh, I'm going to give you kind of the long answer. And I want to do this because I'd like to tell the listeners where this, my definition is coming from. Um, I'm part of a, an organization called the Alliance for AI and Healthcare. Uh, we formed last year, 2019, and launched at JP Morgan. And at the end of 2019, I had the privilege of collaborating on a, a fairly hefty technical white paper with some real industry thought leaders. And so the definitions of AI and, and its subsets that I'm going to provide come directly from that white paper. The reason I want to do that is, is the whole point of the white paper was to create a lexicon, something that we all in the industry of AI and healthcare can kind of agree to use the same terms in the same way. So we're all on the same page. And so uh, if your listeners want to read this thing, they can find it at theaaih.org. Um, but in the meantime, I can just answer your question. So... AI, in, in simple terms, uh, is the study of artificial intelligent agents and systems uh, that exhibit the ability to accomplish complex goals. And now I know that's sort of a circular definition because I used both the word artificial and intelligent in, in that definition. So what we're really talking about is some sort of constructed agent that can accomplish complex goals. In everyday life, usually when we talk about AI, we're talking about some form of machine learning, which is a subset of AI. And you know, the, the notion here is that this is, is the study of algorithms or statistical models that computer systems can use to perform these specific tasks without explicit instructions. And so that, that's a subset of AI that I think that we usually actually mean when we talk about AI, which is sort of a, a higher level uh, taxonomic term. Can I jump in here? Yeah, please. That's that's a good point, because I think in my mind, I want to know what is the difference between like a computer program that's written and executed and can carry out somewhat complex tasks or even an algorithm where it has a branched decision model making. Is that AI? And how is that different from the true definition of AI? Uh, when, you know, at least in, in the context of AI we're, we're talking about, so in, in a machine learning system, the idea is that the computational program, the algorithms or the models, will actually learn patterns. And they'll learn this from some initial data set, but then they can apply these to future data sets. And if they're built in a certain way, they can continue to learn from the future data sets so that they get, quote, smarter for the data sets that come after that. This is in contrast to a standard computer algorithm that just does the same thing over and over again. 
and is kind of static or fixed in its capacity to ingest some information and, and output product, even if it can do that at massive scale. An AI system, on the, on the contrary, is able to actually evolve in a way. It gets better at a task or at least changes uh, the way that it does the task based on information it's already seen. You know, an example of this is, you know, that I see in everyday life is my, my Amazon shopping recommendations. Sometimes I, I joke that it's not so smart. You know, I just bought a giant pack of diapers and the next day they recommend I buy more diapers. Well, you know, they should probably give me a few weeks. Then they start sending me lots of other stuff for, you know, baby items. So clearly they're, they're learning my preferences. Netflix has done a really good job of making the recommendation engine a standard part of our lives. But essentially all content products out on the web today are relying on some sort of AI to learn what you like and try to sell you more of it. Now, AI has been around since the 1950s, is that correct? And if so, why haven't we seen more progress? So that's right. Um, most people, I think the term AI was coined in 1956 by John McCarthy. Um, I don't know that it's fair to say we haven't seen more progress across the board. Um, I think that it's, it's kind of come in fits and starts. So AI, like virtually any other topic that has these sort of hype cycles, also, you know, they have summers and winters. So right now, people are really excited about AI, basically in every industry. You know, everything from Forbes to Harvard Business Review has articles about how if your company isn't generating an AI strategy, you're going to get left behind. But, you know, there are definitely winters. There are times where you get laughed out of the room if you talk about AI and you have to come up with some euphemism for it so that, that you can be taken seriously. I think that we've seen in just the last, say, decade and a half, a massive increase in the prevalence of AI, thanks in large part to cloud computing, to you know people using the internet to aggregate large data sets. And I think, if anything, the limitation before was some combination of computing is only recently decentralized and as powerful as it is, and the second part is the data. And this is really where I think the slowness of healthcare to adopt AI in a meaningful way um, we really can point to to the issue of generating or at least aggregating the right kinds of data sets to actually be able to apply AI. Now, you mentioned the term AI winter. I think many of us have heard that. Could you explain that a little more? Is this a real thing or is it more of a sentiment or does it have to do with money flowing into the space and productivity and new products coming out? That's a good question. I, I don't think I've been in the space long enough to really understand the history intimately. In other words, I wasn't working in AI during the last winter, but I've spoken with people who were. I think my favorite uh, anecdote about this was from uh, Daphne Kohler, who, who's a, a world-renowned AI scientist. She would call herself a machine learning scientist, probably. She's become so conditioned not to use the phrase AI because in her career, there was a time where she had to start putting cognitive computing on all of her grants instead because AI couldn't get funded. So what's the chicken and the egg? I'm not, I'm not really sure whether it's a lack of funding from the public or private sectors that makes people start doubting it or whether, whether it's just industries kind of sour on, on it. But, you know, I think anything where there's just massive hype around some sort of change where the change is going to be more incremental than the hype leads us to believe, you know, it leads to some sort of disillusionment. And I think in the last one to two years, I think we're definitely in a period of hype. Can you explain how we got to this point? Good question. Where, where did the, the hype come from? So I, I think, and this is, I mean, this is generally not just in healthcare. I think, you know, we can look at the success of companies like Google and Facebook and, you know, Netflix and, and Amazon and a huge amount of what drives their success is their ability to deploy AI uh, seamlessly in the background where you don't even know that's what's happening, but somehow it just knows what you're looking for, knows what you're thinking, etc. And so these tech giants, which, you know, they weren't always inevitable, but they 
They've come to dominate our everyday, sort of paved the way. They showed us what was possible by integrating AI if only you, you spent the time to get the data all in one place. And so I think that both the, the folks who hold the, the purse strings to funding new innovation and also the people who, who want to innovate see this huge opportunity space to take what we've learned from from the kind of pioneers in web-based AI and then apply that everywhere. Because, you know, if you can make something work faster, better, cheaper, you know, you might be onto something. But but I also think just the way, you know, the venture capital space and venture-backed startups are kind of prone to this hype cycle or any kind of hype cycle because the entire nature of, you know, raising that first seed round is going out and pitching a big vision for something that you may or may not have even started building yet. So the, the very nature of it is to, to get out there and scream at the top of a mountain about this giant vision you have, which inevitably is going to be bigger than you can achieve over a short time span. But, but that's sort of the point. We've all heard uh, these cliches like there's no area of healthcare that's not going to be impacted by AI or those physicians that are not using AI are going to be left behind. So specifically, what do you see in terms of applications in healthcare for AI? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. The the space that I spend the most time in is frankly around drug discovery, which is only a small subsection of, of healthcare. In fact, I, I would argue it's it's almost adjacent to healthcare. So we can talk about things like drug discovery, we can talk about things like drug development. Those are sort of two pharma-centric spheres that, that a lot of the smaller companies and new companies are playing in because there's capital there. There's also then, of course, uh, clinical care. And I think this is really what you're aiming at. Diagnostics is an obvious place where I think AI is already having a big um, impact and, and will continue to have an outsized impact. In diagnostics, the whole point is, you know, you want to be able to take some measurement and have that be a surrogate for a much more complex biological state or disease or malady or, you know, maybe it's not just a diagnostic, maybe you want to have a prognostic, you want to know how is this patient going to do, or maybe you want it to be predictive and say, you know, if we give them uh, intervention A or B, what are they likely to respond favorably or, or adversely? And so those kinds of questions are especially well suited to a system that learns from learns patterns from previous data and then can continue to learn as uh, as we iterate with new data. So I think that the whole diagnostic aspect of clinical care is already starting to be disrupted by by AI and will continue to be. Our listeners are very much interested in diagnostics. So could you just explain to us how AI is going to take us to the next level? So let's say in this current iteration, you know, the development of a diagnostic from start to finish, you'd start with maybe a few clinical trials, doing what you call discovery, you identify maybe a set of a couple hundred genes that in a univariate analysis would correlate with outcome. That gene set can then get whittled down to maybe 20, 30, 40 genes, and then woven into a score or an algorithm, which then can do a much better job than any of the individual genes. Strictly speaking, it's a score and algorithm. There's no AI component to it. How is AI going to help us in this? Well, I think just to get to that score, to, to get to that score and have a really high predict, you know, sort of predictive accuracy and to do it in an efficient way, we will have employed machine learning at multiple points along the way. And so what you just described is actually something my company does a fair bit of. And you described it very well. The, the key here is what do we want to measure for this patient to understand something better? And in some cases, maybe it's a simple like blood chemistry panel that we're already good at and we know how to interpret. And oh, look, the glucose is high. This means X, Y, or Z. But for more complex diseases or more complex conditions where maybe the treatment options are also rather complex, there, there's just a ton of available information that are too large and too varied for human eyeballs to do a terribly good job with on their own. And so 
to go from being able to measure either variation in the sequence or in the expression of, say, 30,000 genes to something that's clinically actionable and can be put on a panel that's closer to 30 genes takes a huge amount of work, and, and that work is made much more accurate and also much faster uh, through the use of learning systems. So I, that's an area where AI is already in use. Uh, some of the, the bigger pioneering companies around molecular um, diagnostics are already using uh, machine learning as a tool. Uh, I saw a great talk by, by a scientist from, from Flatiron Health the other day, and she had a slide just being very clear that machine learning is a tool, not a product, um, but it's absolutely essential for them to be able to parse the millions of patient records that they have to find patterns. Foundation Medicine is another one that uses genetic variants and has uh, quite a lot of data science behind it and so forth. I also think with new high-throughput data modalities that were, you know, these are, are things like single cell and spatial pathology, uh, high-throughput spatial pathology. These are areas that because they're they're so fresh, they're kind of converging with the, the newer algorithmic approaches and, and it'll almost be native to these new, you know, new data generation methods to just have an AI system that helps interpret it. But even old school approaches like pathology is probably the area where where machine learning is, is making the biggest impact already because we're quite good at doing image analysis with, with AI. You can thank YouTube's cat versus car, uh, you know, discriminators for, for sort of building these wonderful large public libraries of, of AI algorithms that are just really good at figuring out what's going on in an image. You know, these have been purposed to help speed pathology along. The idea isn't to, to make doctors irrelevant, quite the contrary, is to, to sort of return physicians to, to the job of treating patients and take away a lot of the rote work. And, and I think almost everyone in the industry would say that's, that's really the goal. Our guest last week was Dr. Mike Bonham from ProSha, who is developing AI for uh, image analysis and pathology, digital pathology. And I think one thing that struck me is we kind of woke up to the fact that, hey, wait a minute, these are just images, right? So when you go into Walmart and, you, and they have cameras scanning your face and they know everyone who's in the store, some of the first companies in image analysis for pathology from, were from the French Royal Air Force, right? So they, they were very good at analyzing digital pictures from a high elevation, which is exactly what we do in pathology. So I think the overlap is, is fascinating. Is AI a matter of better, cheaper, faster, high throughput? Or are we somehow in these clinical trials, for example, going to transcend what was previously possible using biostatistics? For example, let's say a company spends millions and millions of dollars in a phase three drug trial, it turns out to be a negative trial. Then you say, wait a minute, there's gotta be some patients in that trial who actually got the benefit from the drug. Now, are we gonna be able to unlock things that previously we wouldn't have been able to? So what you're really asking about is what are gonna be the zero to one in innovations? What's possible now that wasn't before? I think the answer is both. So you know, better, faster, stronger, cheaper, whatever, that's important, especially in a space like you know clinical development, where the clinical trial failure rate is really high, contributes mightily to the overall cost of bringing drugs to market, and then in principle that impacts the cost of drugs, which is, is problematic. So the ability to run better clinical trials because you've used machine learning to get to patient stratification approach, or to be able to salvage a failed trial because you can do a retrospective analysis, I think those are all really useful things, but I would call those you know, large incremental improvements. The zero to one stuff that I'm interested in 
and it's not something I work on myself, but I'm, I'm watching closely would be, for example, the idea of doing complete patientless placebo arms or control arms of clinical trials, where you can have patient avatars, uh, essentially digital control arms. And, and there are a number of companies, well, big companies, but also some really promising uh, young, small companies working on that kind of problem. And that's something that you can't just do with pencil and paper statistics. With AI, there's this interesting topic of ethics. And one aspect seems to be in the clinical sphere, pathology and radiology or things like that, where you might be faced with a conclusion drawn by AI, and then your job is to agree or disagree with it or sign out the case or put your name there on the X. The question is, is it ever ethical to agree with the conclusions of AI? This seems like a, kind of a quixotic question. Is it ever ethical to disagree with a colleague or another human being? Obviously, people would say yes, but now we're entering a new realm. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's oversimplifying that particular scenario, but it seems to me that we should think of it just like getting a second opinion. You go to the world's expert and whatever uh, disease you've been diagnosed with, and she or he may give you a certain prognosis, but if you don't like what you hear, you're almost certainly going to go to the world's second leading expert and ask for their opinion. And we know, for example, on the cutting edge of, of cancer research, that there are widely disparate opinions, both in terms of prognosis, treatment, you know, regimen, and so forth, held by equally uh, renowned experts. So I, I think it would be, I don't particularly find it, I don't find it ethically dubious to question the output of an AI. What I think is more risky hornet's nest is linking the output of an AI to some direct intervention where there isn't perhaps a second opinion by either a human or by uh, another you know, AI system that, that may have been trained differently. And I'll, I'll give you an example that occurred uh, not so long ago where there was essentially a chat bot where someone could, you know, interface with a virtual doctor to get their diagnosis or their prognosis. The story goes that the chat bot essentially delivered a terminal diagnosis. And so here you have a machine delivering the news to someone that they are going to die. That seems to me kind of egregious. One, because the one thing that I'm not sure AI or machines really can do in, in the short run is empathy. Empathy should be a major part of clinical care. And the other is, you know, what if it is wrong? How is it equipped to discuss the options? And so I, I think that, that the automation of what we act on from AI needs to be thought through really, really carefully, especially at the interface of, of actual patients and human beings. It's certainly going to open up a lot of medical legal ramifications insofar as, well, who made this decision? How did you derive this judgment or this uh, treatment? I also think, let, let me just comment on that a bit further. I think the other thing we'll see is AI systems in healthcare are going to be under a huge amount of scrutiny. And the analogy I'll give here is self-driving cars, which is also an AI-based technology. You know, I don't know what the, the death by motor vehicle accident rate is in the world or just the traffic accident rate is, but it's high. And that's all based on, you know, humans and some abiotic, you know, abiotic, ahuman factors you can't control. People are bad at driving and they wreck a lot and people die behind the wheel a lot and that's terrible. But one self-driving car goes off the rails and there's an accident and the entire industry gets a major black eye and setback, even if the overall safety rates will outperform human drivers. Because it's a new technology, because it's something we feel that we don't control. And I think in healthcare, you're going to see the same thing. You know, a misdiagnosis or a misappropriation of, of intervention by an AI is, is going to be damaging to the industry in a way that doctors do it all the time, but it's just kind of part of the practice. And the other aspect of ethics that seem to be cropping up are a throwback to the 1950s from science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, who wrote the, quote, laws of robotics. That aspect is, well, how can we focus on how can we contain this source of machines possibly gathering intelligence? What are your thoughts on that? 
That's a, a really good question. What, what Asimov's referring to is something that I think is known in sort of the AI academic fields as general artificial intelligence, which is this notion that AI systems can then learn A, how to, to do human things, but also can learn how to learn. This is why, again, folks like, like Daphne Kohler like to talk about machine learning rather than AI, just to avoid the risk of confusion between what she's talking about or what we're talking about, you and I, and this general AI, artificial general intelligence as it's something sometimes known. You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't study AGI. I don't know how realistic it is. Despite working in the technology industry, I tend to be a bit of a Luddite, and I approach a lot of technology with, with healthy skepticism. So I'm, I'm not immediately worried that you know, all the healthcare computers in the world are going to band together and come up with a plot to do X or Y. But I do think that the more you, we rely on technological solutions, the more we have to concern ourselves with bad actors who may think about breaching those and, and misappropriating them or, or using them for, for nefarious use to the extent that, that, you know, an AI could become corrupted or fed a, a you know, crappy training set or something. I think those are perfectly reasonable security risks that, that we have to concern ourselves with. Uh, Raphael Rosengarten, uh, this is incredibly fascinating, especially useful for those of us in diagnostics. Now, can we talk a little bit about you and what you've done at uh, Genialis? Sure. Um, I'd be happy to, to talk about it. So Genialis is a computational precision medicine company. So we're really focused on the question of how can we predict which patients are most likely to respond positively to a therapy? And, and the flip side of that is, of course, can we predict adverse events as well? Uh, the bulk of our work these days is, is partnering with pharma companies in clinical development. So trying to make clinical trials more effective, giving patients a fighting chance. So uh, working towards clinical trial designs where the patients who are enrolled are in fact likely to benefit. You know, we, we think about clinical trials. These aren't just experiments that are meant to get a drug approved to market. These are meant to be a way for patients to access the cutting edge of therapy. It's a great time to be working in cancer therapeutics and CNS therapeutics and, and other diseases because just the, the number of new and high potential therapeutic modalities is, is through the roof. We have incredible immune agents that we can treat people with now. Cell and gene therapy are, are no longer a thing of science fiction and so forth. But with all of these new modalities that are treating more and more complex biological systems rather than you know just a, a single chemical entity hitting a, a single protein target, it's complicated. Human biology is complicated. So Genialis is not afraid to dive into kind of the, the dirty water of, of human data, of patient data. In fact, that's, those are the waters we like to swim in. And so we develop a lot of technologies, some of which are machine learning based. In fact, a lot of them are. Um, and some are just you know, really nice kind of software and computer solutions for aggregating data, for making sure those data are cleaned and processed appropriately. You know, it's the most boring part, but it's the most important part is making sure you have high quality data sets going into any modeling effort. And then we build predictive models to try to predict patient outcome uh, with, for new therapeutic modalities. I think we're definitely entering into a very exciting time. What, what do you think we have to look forward to in the next decade? And let me throw you a curveball because you give us the pessimistic scenario if we don't take advantage of all these new tools that we have. Yeah, I guess, you know, to me, the most pessimistic scenario is that some of these really exciting and high potential therapeutic approaches and technology approaches to, to positioning the therapies uh, hit some speed bumps. Something goes wrong in limited cases, but those are sufficiently damaging to the effort that we see more setbacks. And we've already seen this, for example, in the gene therapy space. Back in the 90s, there was a single patient death. You know, people who work in the field will tell you that that set the, 
the entire field back by 10 years. I think that the, the regulatory agencies and the, the de drug developers and researchers now have maybe a slightly more seasoned risk tolerance and understand kind of the, the landscape of these setbacks. But this is where I think the technology can help to be very thoughtful, but also be very thorough in modeling out uh, the potential for these new therapies. So where I think we'll be in 10 years, I think that precision medicine will just be called medicine. The idea of, of complex diseases like cancer, every cancer will be thought of as a rare disease. And what I mean by that is we'll think of your cancer is yours, and it's not going to be the same as a patient elsewhere with just a similar tumor and from a similar uh, tissue type. One area that we haven't talked about, but I'm, I'm really hopeful, is that we figure out how to better use some of these technologies for both prevention and early detection. Certainly in, in diseases like cancer, those are really the most effective ways to, to treat the disease is to help people not get it, just catch it really early. But again, the pessimistic view is that we screw up something, you know, on a small scale, but it's, it's sufficiently damaging that, that it sets the whole effort back. Well, Raphael Rosengarten, thank you so much for coming on. How can people learn more about you and Genialis? Well, follow us on social media. It's one way. So you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Genialis, or uh, my handle is at Rafe Cooks, R-A-F-E-C-O-O-K-S. That's a throwback to when I actually used to be a, a line cook for a living before my career in science. All right. Our guest has been Raphael Rosengarten, CEO of Genialis. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.